welcome to the Stetzer Church Leaders Podcast, conversations with today's top ministry leaders to help you lead better every day. And now, podcasting from the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center in Chicagoland, here are your hosts, Ed Stetzer and Daniel Yang. Welcome to the Sets of Church Leaders podcast, where we're helping Christian leaders navigate and lead through the cultural issues of our day. My name is Daniel Yang, the director of the Church Multiplication Institute, and we're excited to have with us today Justin and Lindsay Holcomb. Justin is an Episcopal minister and teaches theology at Reformed Theological Seminary and Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. He serves on the Board of Grace, which stands for Godly Response to Abuse in Christian Environments, as well as on the boards of Heart Support and Leaders Collective. Lindsay holds a master's degree in public health with a focus on violence against women. She's provided crisis intervention to victims of sexual assault and domestic violence. Lindsay's also worked as a case manager at a sexual assault crisis center and domestic violence shelter. She now works at Samaritan Village, an anti-trafficking organization in Florida. But first, let's hear from Ed Setzer, our editor-in-chief of Outreach Magazine and executive director of the Wheaton College Billy Graham Center. Yeah, good, good to have you on listening. For those of you listening, this is a really it's a sensitive topic. Um, we should even mention we're going to talk about some of these triggering things about sexual abuse and more, but it's such an important topic. And for me, I, you know, I've been trying to learn. I've been trying to learn for years. And one of, the, one of my teachers, some of my teachers are right here. And Justin and Lindsay, they're co-authors of God Made All of Me, a book to help prevent, uh, to help children protect their bodies and rid of my disgrace, hope and healing for sexual assault victims. And because here we're, we're much conversation about um, how churches have responded poorly. And I think it's important to have those conversations. And I, I want to talk today, though, how we can respond well. And hopefully, you know, our audience is pastors and church leaders. Um, as I've been learning from Justin Lindsay, uh, others can learn as well. And this conversation will help advance some of our better engagement with survivors uh, and more. So um, let, let me just start with with Justin, because um, when we talk about abuse, uh, we talk about sexual abuse uh, in particular, physical abuse, but abuse, it impacts us at multiple levels. And, um, you know, particularly when people are abused in church and ministry contexts, talk to us a little bit about what are the consequences uh, of that abuse in the lives of individuals? How long do they last? How do we think about these challenging journeys that people are walking through. Well, thank you for letting us be here and uh, love to have attention and the light shined into a dark area and love that leaders like you two are doing this and making this available. And what this ha- what happens <clears throat> is the effects of abuse strike people physically, emotionally, psychologically, socially, and spiritually. So it's a comprehensive type of harm and how the effects play out are going to be different from every single person. But it's the comprehensive picture that's so clear that the key word for any type of abuse, uh, sexual abuse, domestic abuse, those are the the two key that most people hone in on is that it's traumatic. It's an Mm -hmm. overwhelming negative response to harm. And the, the key spiritual effects are a deep sense of distorted identity or self-esteem. Just someone's self-worth is just ground into the dirt. Shame is the other main, uh, main effect of just feeling like damaged goods, feeling dirty, filthy, vulnerable. And then some others that would be an effect are anger and trying to, you know, I'm feeling angry. Is that inappropriate? Is that wrong? Um, But what ends up happening because of the prevalence of abuse? And I mean, people know the stats at this point, but just to be really clear, one in four women, one in six men are Mm -hmm. or will be survivors of sexual abuse. 
one in five women and one in 20 men are or will be survivors of domestic or intimate partner abuse. And one out of five children are sexually abused before their 18th birthday. So the prevalence is so high. So that's why having this conversation with church leaders is so huge because I just keep on telling church leaders, pastors, look into the congregation and divide by four. And that's how Mm, many people have a direct response of abuse. And then everyone else there is connected to them. Everyone knows someone has suffered abuse. And we could, we could spend a half hour right now listening to people that are close in each one of our lives that have suffered. And so that's why talking to church leaders, because as you said, the church has done a bad job at times, but the church is also one of the most powerful forces in someone's life. There's a word uh, called pharmacon. I'm not trying to go nerdy on us, but pharmacon, and some philosophers talk about this, pharmacon, the root word is, it it could be poison or cure. So Mm -hmm. it, it could go both ways. And sometimes the church is pharmacon poison when they don't give gospel, when they victim blame, but the church is also pharmacon cure because we have the hope of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit working and applying the work of Christ in people's lives. And we can just tell stories about the power of the gospel. And we're not saying this in some type of uh, simplistic, here's a Bible verse that'll make you feel better. Like Mm -hmm. the work of Christ, death, resurrection, and ascension and return, what that has, what that means for survivors. Well, and that's what your your book uh, that you co-authored together, "Rid uh, Rid of My Disgrace," really gets into. So, Lindsay, uh, when when you all wrote "Rid of My uh, Rid of My Disgrace: Hope and Healing for Victims of Sexual Assault," I mean, you really talk about God's grace bringing healing to survivors. Um, you know, there are some believers who who think that uh, survivors should just look to the Bible alone rather than go to licensed therapists and counselors. Um, but how, how can you help uh, believers think through the necessity of both, you know, grace and the Bible and the believing community, but also the role of uh, licensed professionals? Well, that's a great question because I worked at a sexual assault crisis center that was secular. And when, before Jess and I wrote rid of my disgrace, we, we were dating at that time. And when I was working at the crisis center and we'd go on these dates and I would kind of share with them just vaguely some stories and my frustrations that I just kept seeing a lot of the victims just kind of come in over and over again with the same issue and really struggling. And of course it is a ministry of long suffering. There's no quick fix, especially when there's been decades of abuse. Um, but not really seeing a lot of healing happen. And so when we were talking on our dates, I would ask him, I'm like, what have you learned in seminary? You know, how, what does God say about this? And he was like, I have learned nothing in seminary. And this was back in 2000. I learned, I learned nothing about abuse in seminary. We we understood the context. (laughs) You learned nothing about abuse. And this was in 2005, 2006, where it wasn't being talked about, but, um, And so we slowly started kind of really looking through scripture and what does God say about abuse and his response and his righteous anger and how does Jesus apply healing and how does that all kind of fit into the story? And that's the book was kind of born and just realizing there really wasn't anything on the market. But I always tell um, pastors and parents and survivors, like, of course, like scripture is essential, like apart from Christ, like we have no hope and we believe hope and healing because of the the life and work of Jesus. And so, but 
a lot of times survivors need someone to walk alongside them and unpack a lot of the myths and misconceptions they've been carrying around, a lot of the lies, a lot of the terrible degradation that they have just been shouldering for years or even a month. And so having a you know, trauma-informed, a theologically robust counselor, a mental health provider that can actually walk them through a lot of their questions, a lot of the lies they've been carrying around that maybe their abuser had told them is so key rather than just here, take this Bible and go on your way. Um, I believe in kind of creating a safety net of supporters. And so we see that as I work at the sexual or at the sex trafficking um, safe house, really creating a network of safe people that a survivor can call on when crisis happens, when there's good stuff going on. And one of those would be a therapist. I believe strongly. I think there's a lot of bad therapists out there that would do more harm than good. Um, but there's a lot of really great ones that are, like I said, theologically sound and robust, um, that understand trauma, that understand the complexities of domestic violence, of sexual abuse that can come alongside a survivor and do a lot of real great healing. Well, can I jump in just because yep, I learned so. from Lindsay, the, in addition to the licensed therapist, I remember Lindsay saying, oh yeah, we're, we're working with people on financial um you know, financial literacy and and helping balance checkbook and getting legal assistance and medical assistance and vocational assistance. And I started seeing how robust it was. And as a pastor, I learned that when I started meeting with someone and they were a survivor of abuse, I, I had, you know, immediately, okay, let's get an expert who knows how trauma works in someone's with their memory, with their, with their biology of how chemicals in their body and their mind work. And then started working with doctors and just encouraging people to go to their medical doctor and do a vitamin check and make mm. sure all their levels mm. were okay. So we actually created a team because I thought counselor, doctor, spouses, family support, pastor. So I played a role as a pastor and I got to stay in my lane where I could do what I could really do and then work with the therapist and then work with the doctor and be a team. And it, it actually helped shoulder the burden that we were all shouldering for those survivors. And so that was just a great picture that I learned from seeing how comprehensive the care was that Lindsay was doing in these other settings. Yeah. And I, I would say that, you know, you said they didn't learn anything in seminary about responding to abuse. I don't know that I did either. Um, and mine was a little longer than yours, but I, I don't remember learning anything. And even just the last few years, um, you know, for, for personal reasons, uh, I started to learn more and to share more and um, try to encourage pastors. You know, we recently just taught a class and, and we read Redeeming Power, uh, Understanding Authority and Abuse in the Church, Diane Lemberg's book, and kind of talk through some of the these issues, these issues that we're all trying to do better on. I love I love the language used about it, like a team of care. Um, so, so here we have a situation where, let's say someone comes to, uh, to someone in the church, maybe to a pastor, most of our audience is pastors and church leaders, uh, and, I, and, and so someone comes, how might we respond to bring that team of care and concern? Someone comes and indicates they've been, uh, been abused, um, help us. Because again, I, I, I would think that this is not something I learned in seminary. It's something that probably is just a few years old I've been learning about. And hopefully by, I can share the learning you have with our audience, how might they respond? Let's first go to Lindsay and then go to Justin. So one way pastors can respond, of course, you know, the first one is always saying, I believe you. I'm so glad that um, you are coming to me and sharing this with me. It's an honor and a privilege to come alongside you um, with any individual, whether it's sexual abuse, sex trafficking, domestic violence, it is 
imperative that a pastor or caregiver or whoever's coming alongside and, and walking through this is constantly giving back agency to the individual, male, female, child, while at the same time presenting options. Because oftentimes when you're in the midst of trauma, you're just in fight or flight mode and you don't know, you know, what's next apart from just the next hour. So really thinking down the road of what do I need is, is really tricky. So if a pastor could say, Hey, here's some options of things that I think could be really helpful as we kind of pull together some different people that can care for you and come alongside you, like Justin said, so it doesn't fall all on the pastor's shoulder because that will create a lot of burnout. If you're trying to carry everybody in the church, um, rather than saying, let's create a a support team. So creating um, kind of a list of options. And that really is on the pastor to go ahead of of a situation and make connections in the community. So they know, hey, this is somebody that I have vetted and I feel like they really understand and I really trust them, but here's a few options. And I want you to think through them. We can call them together. We can go together. I can, especially if it's a female, you know, maybe let's, we've identified some people in the church that have been trained around these issues that are volunteers or paid staff that can step in. So it's not just a, a male pastor with a female survivor. So that's, that's a basic kind of initial one. I'm sure Justin's got a few he can add. Well, I want, I want to go back to your first point, okay. the moment of disclosure. This is something I want every church leader, pastor, and Christian to hear. The moment of disclosure is a key moment when the person and what that's that's a technical term, but it's pretty clear. It just means when the person discloses part of the story. And so the moment of what happens is most people, that's why Lindsay said how powerful it is to say it's not your fault. I believe you. Mm. And so Mm -hmm. all of the research, all of the psychological research says the moment of disclosure, the two key things that help people in their healing are being listened to and being believed. And literally just making eye contact and showing some form of like, not just being cold, like basic bedside care type of language. And so I love, I love when I speak on this and just telling people, because it is overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Every time someone tells me they're going to tell me a story about abuse, I kind of tense up. And most Mm -hmm. people would think, why would you tense up? Because I have every story is different and there's darkness and the person's burdened. Yeah. And if they're talking to me, unless we're really close friends, they're, they're burdened because they're looking for hope. So that moment of disclosure is so powerful. And any Christian can do that part uh, is listening and indicating some type of like, I'm so sorry. I believe like just saying, I'm so sorry, already communicates you're listening and believing. And then I, I've always asked, like, what would be most helpful? I would like to pray with you. I'd like to present you some hope for this, but I don't want to run there too quickly. So mm-hmm. in letting them, this is what I learned from Lindsay, don't ask probing questions. Let them disclose. Let them know, hey, I'm here to listen. Tell me whatever you'd like to tell me. But And that's important because when you're disclosing, the person usually has, let's say you have five cards five, not 10, five cards, they're going to show you one of them or two of them. See how you handle it. If you respond well, you get to see more. I usually don't hear most of the story until uh, a few conversations have taken place when they start trusting more and unveiling more. But so moment of disclosure, uh, not asking probing questions, offering to pray, offering to talk about the gospel, and then saying it, saying Hey, hope and healing. That's the language we always use mm-hmm. in all of our titles and all of our conversations. Hope and healing is available. And as Lindsay's 
line has been for, uh, I still remember the first time she said it, this is a part of your story. It doesn't need to be the end of your story because there's a different ending because of the gospel. And and offering that hope of the gospel. And then you move from that and say, the gospel is about how you relate to God. It's good news about your relationship being made right with God, but it's comprehensive in your hope and healing. And part of that healing is uh, psychological and medical. Mm. And so, so I, as much as you would like me to be a part of that team, I would love to play that role. Uh, I'm not, a th- I've said numerous times, our denomination doesn't let us meet with someone more than three times about a particular issue before we have to refer. I love that because it lets me say, I'd love to serve as your pastor in this walk alongside you. And let's, is there someone else that in addition that you had, can talk to about this, that can support you is your spouse available or a friend or a family member, a parent or whomever small group. Um, if asking, have you talked to your pastor about this? If you're not the pastor. Uh, so those are the, those are the basics. And then inviting to serve as the uh, team coordinator, if that's something that, that they would want. I'd like to hear from the both of you on this, but Lindsay, um, you know, especially because you counsel victims in, um, of both sexual assault and domestic violence, but if you are meeting with somebody and you don't quite yet know, and they haven't told you that they are experiencing abuse, but you suspect that, um, what do you recommend for pastors and church leaders? How do they advance the conversation? Do you push? Do you kind of wait? Like, how do you handle that particular situation if you suspect abuse is involved? It's, I was thinking about that um, earlier because I was like, not every individual, I mean, in a, in a perfect world, someone's going to come and, you know, say this is going on. But I think more often than not, because abuse, especially domestic violence and even sexual abuse can often become normalized, like this is the way it's always been. I don't know any different. Um, there's not language to really identify what is happening to the individual. So I would say for a pastor who is has a suspicion for an adult, Um, we'll speak about adults and then children, but a pastor who has kind of an inkling that there might be domestic violence going on or sexual abuse, um, it is really important, especially around domestic violence, that the pastor is not bringing the spouses together. And this sounds probably pretty simple, but we've seen it done and we've heard it done a lot where they will bring in the couple for couple counseling and pastoral care. And that's really dangerous because now you have the victim sitting in there with their abuser. And even though if you're unsure, it just isn't a safe place. There's not going to be a lot of education done. Um, But I think it's important if pastors can get really trained or just basically trained on the definition of domestic violence, the definition of sexual abuse. So then as they're talking to somebody, you know, very gently, they can say, gosh, I hear what you're saying. And this is what it sounds like. Um, You know, this is what I'm hearing from you. From what I have read and been trained on, um, it seems to be kind of in this category of, of domestic violence, or it seems to be in this category of sexual abuse. And this is the definition of sexual abuse. Does this sound in line with, with what maybe you've experienced? Um, and so that's one way that I've seen Justin um, kind of work with pastors and, and even as he's been working individually with, with folks, and that's dealing with an adult. When it's children and you have a suspicion you call 911. <laughs> you call the police. You don't um, probe and ask questions. You report immediately when there's any suspicion about childhood abuse. What do you think, Justin? Absolutely. <laughs> what 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 stood out is 
what we what I wasn't ready for when we wrote Road of My Disgrace, we did a lot on the we did the definition as one chapter, and then the second chapter were the effects of abuse. A lot of people read the effects chapter and then realized, wait a second, I think what happened to me falls under a different category of this crime and sin of assault or abuse. And that was surprising because that means that even people who have a story of harm or abuse don't necessarily call it that. And they, they have some sense, some struggle, some, some burden. And what I wasn't ready for were for people to come to me and go, I'm feeling like this. And it looks like it might be abuse because they don't have that category because the definitions have been so narrow for so long. And now, thanks to the cultural conversation, the church jumping in and talking about this, people are expanding their definition to realize abuse is not just a very narrow understanding of, um, for example, I, I want to be careful with the word, but but most people think I, I wasn't raped, therefore it doesn't fall into that. Um, so realizing that that definition is broader. So I've had to say, work with people and say, honestly, from what you told me, that sounds like a crime and a sin. Mm -hmm. And I think to acknowledge and name that that's actually abusive behavior. Um, and I, that, that's why I love the question, because that's actually a very tangible reality. And then that's the person not really having the category. If, if you suspect it, everything Lindsay said, you know, follows right after that. And I, I can share two stories. I've seen Justin during sermons, um, you know, sometimes not every Sunday, but he would kind of say, you know, if there's been sins that have been committed against you of any sort, um, you know, and that causes a lot of darkness and a lot of shame, um, you know, please feel freedom to, to talk to me, to talk to one of our lay leaders and people come out of the, out of the woodwork and they, they realize, okay, like this might be a safe place. My pastor's kind of pseudo mentioned, sins committed against me. And they maybe will list some examples. Um, so that is something a pastor can do. But just to give an example of how um, somebody who's walking through abuse, it can be very normal. I grew up in a home where there was domestic violence. It was verbal, emotional abuse with my dad. He left when I was 13. Um, and then I went on to date a guy in high school who was verbally and emotionally abusive. But to me, that was normal. That was just how you interacted wow. and related. And it wasn't. And then I, I go on to college. I'm an educated individual who has traveled. I feel like I'm well-read. I feel like I, I know a lot. Um, and then oddly enough, you know, I call it God's providence. He brought me to work at the domestic violence shelter. I thought, oh, I would like to work with those, those ladies. Like that sounds like a really great place to serve. And as I'm sitting in the training and they're going through kind of DV 101, I literally felt like I got slapped in the face and I was like, this was my dad. Like, and, wow. but it, he wasn't hitting my mom. He wasn't throwing things across the house, but we fell within the definition. So I just, I use that example to say, I think nine times out of 10, the pastors are going to have to be doing education about, Hey, this is what I hear from you, or this is what I think is going on. Um, let's look at some of these definitions together and think through that. And very tenderly, you know, obviously mm -hmm. kind of working through that. But I think it is, it's important that you don't need to just necessarily sit back and wait for someone to always disclose because that's really hard for a survivor. You said the pastors are going to do some education. Yet, I think for us pastors, we need some education. I, I don't know that I could have uh, had these conversations 10 years ago. I don't, I don't know. I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, and now we're being informed, and then we're talking about being trauma-informed. I want to talk about that in just a minute, but let me remind you, 
uh, if you're listening to that, there are two books I want to encourage to you. Uh, I already mentioned Diane Lang- Langberg's book, but but let me mention that what Justin and Lindsay have written together, God Made All of Me, a book to help children protect their bodies, which I think I had the privilege of endorsing, and we've talked about this on a couple of programs. And then one earlier is Rid of My Disgrace, which I, I read and was was deeply moved. I wept, I wept when I read that book, just full disclosure, Rid of My Disgrace, Hope and Healing for Sexual Assault Victims. So... Um, so informed, uh, clearly, um, and hopefully people are listening to this podcast, pastors and church leaders will then say, I want to learn more. And again, get those books and there are others. But um, particularly with the number, we talk about one in four women, we talk about one in six young men. I mean, this is a substantial number of people in your congregation. And But now we're hearing new, new language, like being trauma-informed. And that's, that's new. I want people to be informed about some of the dynamics of abuse. What does it mean to be trauma informed? Can you unpack that some for us? Yeah, I love that we're I love that we're talking about that phrase because it's being used a lot. Um, so let me give you a definition of trauma, and that helps because there's yeah. three dimensions to trauma. Uh, definition of trauma, and this is this is kind of boilerplate. So this is not our definition. It's an individual trauma results from an event, series of events, or set of circumstances that is experienced by an individual as physically or emotionally harmful or life-threatening and has lasting effects on the individual's functioning and mental, physical, social, emotional, and spiritual well-being. That is from the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. That is the concept of trauma. I've seen that definition everywhere in trauma, trauma definitions. There's three dimensions to that that there's an event, there's a trauma event, and it could be exposure to or experience of. There's an event, that's part one. It's an experience of trauma. The person actually, there's a subjective element. The person uh, experiences that as a traumatic event. Not all people that have a traumatic event happen experience it as traumatic. You just heard Lindsay describing her own story until she realized, wait a second, that is. And then there's an effect. Trauma always comes with adverse effects. So event, experience, and effect are the three dimensions of trauma. And and trauma affects survivors comprehensively, bodily, uh, health, emotion, psychological, spiritual, social. And and what happens with trauma is how memory works. That's the key thing for being trauma-informed is that trauma memory is different from typical memory. In trauma memory, your body remembers because it hasn't, that memory hasn't been processed in your brain and in your mind, the way that most memories do, it doesn't get processed um, like other memories. And so it kind of resides and you relive the memory as opposed to just seeing it in your mind at a distance. It's actually right in front of you. And that's, there's so many effects. People have experienced trauma. You have increase in depression, suicidal ideation, post-traumatic stress, alcohol abuse, drug use. And so there's a, you start seeing how the effects play themselves out. So trauma informed is being aware of how, what is trauma um, and what are the effects? And then what are the possible um, helps for someone who's trauma informed Um, helping them, and that's where that's where specialists need to be involved because what's not helpful is some type of hyper spiritualized. Let's go back and heal that memory. Like a therapist mm-hmm. can do that, but I have no business going to that person and saying, "Hey, how about closing your eyes? You, me, and Jesus will go back in time and kind of relive that memory." That that's where you're 
we're, we're diving into the deep end where specialists need to help process that memory mm-hmm. and, and heal it. But to be trauma-informed, there, there's actually, I said earlier on, there's uh, the churches can be the poison or the cure. And the reason that we can be a cure, and what I mean cure as a theme, not like we're the cure, obviously, but I want to be careful on that. Uh, a lot of trauma specialists have said, hey, scriptures really, Christian trauma specialists, scripture's really important because it offers a big narrative in which that person lives. And so the way we would talk about the narrative of scripture is God's story of redemption. And we are in it, but there's something that came before us and something that came after us. It gives them a place in a larger story that's not just uh, their entire story and God plays a small role as a character in their life, but they're under this narrative or the fact of the cross. Uh, trauma specialists, trauma-informed theologians have said there's something really powerful that the second person of the Trinity takes on human form and experiences trauma on our behalf. He experienced physical traumas, spiritual trauma. Uh, He was humiliated. He was physically traumatized. He was emotionally traumatized. He was verbally traumatized. There's something too, and Lindsay and I have seen it when people they go through passion week and they start seeing what Jesus went through survivors of abuse. It it can be activating or triggering, but it can also be healing in the sense, wait a second, the God man of all people gets my traumatic experience better than anyone else in the entire world. And that's the whole point of the gospel is the incarnation of the personal work of Jesus. And so what's, what's beautiful is that, something that we take seriously, the, the inspired word of God and the narrative of redemption, that's a huge gift. Uh, the personal work of Jesus, the God man, that's a huge gift. And so we actually have resources in our faith, in our Christian tradition, that are wonderful tools for people who need trauma-informed care. So should, how can we as pastors, most of us are not trained and and because of our lack of training we want to engage partners in mental health uh, but how can we as pastors be more trauma informed uh, maybe not using that term because i think that maybe claims more than we might be able to claim but how, how might we be prepare ourselves better to walk alongside people who have experienced trauma and to be more informed about those trauma realities. Lindsay, let's go to you and then Justin can weigh in as well. Sure. Well, one thing we um, we do at the Safe House for Survivors, and this is adult female survivors of sex trafficking, is we're always thinking through, okay, trauma experiences terrify, overwhelm, and violate the survivor. So how can our care cause safety, cause peace, cause support? Um, and so there are some guiding principles to a trauma-informed informed approach, and one is creating a safe environment. And like I said earlier, you know, if you suspect, suspect that there is domestic violence, not bringing in the two parties um, for counseling. When you have a, a, an adult survivor or um, a female or a male in your office, not closing the door and really asking them, like, where would you like to sit? Where would you feel safe, safest? Is it, you know, can we bring in some other people? I've watched Justin do this when we met with um, an individual just a couple months ago. And he said, you know, can I pray? Would, would you be comfortable? Do you, you can keep your eyes open. You can um, close your eyes. Like you just let me know what makes you the most comfortable. So sometimes it feels a little silly or it might feel like you're overdoing it, but really asking those questions is giving back 
agency and control to the survivor where oftentimes everything has been taken. Um, Another kind of trauma-informed approach that we've talked about extensively is collaborating and thinking through some different people that can come to the table to create this kind of support care team. But a big one is just giving them choice, giving them agency, empowering them um, in ways that maybe a lot of that choice has been taken away, but not assuming things would be easy. Like we said, not assuming they know that you know, what is happening is abuse, not assuming that they know how to pick up the phone and make a call, especially around domestic violence, when there's been so much control, um, just not assuming and really trying to understand, you know, where they're at, kind of what are some cultural and historical issues that maybe are at play. So it's really trying to look at the whole picture and put this puzzle together. But it's okay to ask questions too, like, what can I do? How can I help you? Um, all the time realizing that it's not your goal to, to quote unquote, fix them, um, but to come alongside them. And Justin, I always say this is a ministry of long suffering, of walking alongside them um, and, of course, creating the team so that you can minimize burnout and so you can be available to other people. Um, but those are some key ones that I would think through is really just some basics. Like I said, the door, asking questions, who would you like to meet with? Yeah, I have four quick things on on that. Oh, One like that. is is training. So what what can pastors do? What something that we started doing, and this is, I, I'm almost embarrassed to say that this is only three years going, and I've been serving where I get to serve uh, clergy. I've been doing this for ten years, and a therapist who's one of my friends said, do you guys have like a crisis trauma training for the clergy? And I said, uh, no, we, we hmm. don't. <laughs> and, and she said, I'll do it for you for free. Hmm. And she will wow. come in and she does a half day training on what's crisis, like crisis triage and what is trauma, big T trauma, small T trauma and, and hmm. crisis responses. And she just comes in and trains them. And then that's a half day every year. We just do that for anyone who wants to come. And then we brought in Diane Langberg for a clergy conference to say, teach us, hmm. like teach us about misuse. Of, so the book that, that you just talked about earlier, we, we had Diane come and teach. So think through the training, who can train you about this. The second to think about is as the church leader, you get to influence the culture in the community. Now that's a, it's a hard thing to really steer the culture, but you can start setting the tone uh, by the way you communicate, the way you talk and, and the people that you celebrate, the, the leaders that you celebrate. So be thoughtful about what type of culture is this community of the church? Third is just be aware of your preaching because sometimes people get involved in this. They start throwing words around quickly about abuse and, and that can be not make it a safe culture. Be, be, be wise when you describe violence that's in the text and, and thoughtful. Mm. And then four is part of being a church leader is that you get to bestow. We're not bestowing. God's bestowing. We get to repeat their identity because uh, there's so many different things that are being told to them about their identity. And we get to support. Um, if you have faith in Christ, you're adopted child of God and the Bible words for you are pure, perfect, and holy because of the imputed righteousness of Christ. I mean, you, we get to say some amazingly spectacular and they sound crazy in the best way possible. So don't undermine that part also. Mm. Just I want to come one, back to something you said. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Lindsay. Well, I was going to say one thing pastors also need to be really aware of is when you're sitting down with a survivor, male or female, but particularly female, the idea of God, the father, or like Justin said, God, right. man, Jesus can be really traumatizing if they have been abused by their father or victimized by men. And so just even 
just that basic of trying to present to them, well, let's go to scripture and look at, you know, what God says. They might, even though attending church might be a regular pattern in their life, there could be a lot of roadblocks there that I've seen just with the survivors in our safe house. They are, they've, they've heard a lot about God. They know about Jesus, but they really, um, come in with a lot of roadblocks because of their victimization by men. And it's, it's challenging that, um, and that's something that a pastor will need to be very tender with as they are unpacking that slowly and presenting, you know, the real Jesus to them. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. You, you know, in, in counseling somebody, uh, and Justin, I'll, I'll ask you first, like, and when you discover that uh, you, you have this rule, I mean, you only counsel three times and you refer out and, uh, you know, that's fantastic. I, I think all pastors wish they could do that. Maybe they should. But when you're counseling and you realize that, oh man, this is actually getting to a line where it needs more than pastoral counseling, and you probably need clinical or, 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 or clinical help or, or a therapist, how do you discern that? Um, uh, and then once you've discerned that and you refer them out, how do you continue to walk alongside that person in a family that um, is having to take care of you know the trauma uh, from a particular event or you know the discovery that they've been abused? Well- and everyone's denominational connection or or affiliation is going to be different. We happen to be in a setting where we had 82 churches that are all connected in a geographical region called a diocese, or there's a presbytery or a synod or a network or a region. So what one thing I've already done is I've gone through and we've already made a list of therapists that we make available to all the clergy. So we kind of went through who are some therapists that we know we can recommend that way because it's overwhelming if you go, hey, I think you need some therapeutic help, and they go. Well, where do I start? I mean, that, that's just a huge burden. I would feel burdened by that. And I'm not in the middle of it. So one is doing the pre-work. Um, the second is, is communicating that the reason, so I've been in settings like where getting, going with your scenario, someone has said, Hey, here's my disclosure. What's happening. We're meeting. And I'm realizing I'll say there's a limit to what I am trained and what I might be helpful to do. And so I'll just explain, you know, mm. as a pastor, um, hope and healing, and this is a topic I, I've said, this is a topic my wife and I have researched, we've taught on, we've we've done pastoral type of care or, you know, just, just like lay care, Christian care, um, but therapists are a great tool. What I've been noticing is that a few people, uh, more and more, they will refer to, hey, I, as I was talking with my therapist, but, and so some people... I've been noticing there's one scenario where people have a therapist and they're coming because they want the pastoral dimension that their therapist says, I'm a therapist. I can't do that. I'm a Christian, but let's go talk to your pastor. And so I'm, so your scenario is the other direction. I'm meeting with them and I will say something like this, what you're unbelievably resilient, you're courageous and brave. Just say that because for someone to disclose the most painful thing in their life takes so much courage. So I just say, you're so brave and courageous. Thank you for sharing this with me. The darkness that you've experienced is pretty intense. And the way God made you and your resilience is remarkable. Just say what you're saying. And there's a limit to the amount of care I can give. And I, my recommendation, that's the word, my recommendation is that we might want to get a, an expert who can really navigate this, but we I'm not handing you off. I'm, this isn't because you're damaged goods and I'm handing you off. This is because I want to make sure as your pastor that I'm doing a good job caring for you. 
And that, that sounds different. That sounds like, Hey, and, and as you know, some pastors, they need to be the center of attention. They need to fix things, but the good pastors, which are most pastors that sign up to do what they're doing. Cause I know how hard it is. I know how many hours they work. Pastors work uh, 15 more hours than their congregation and church knows 15. And it's one of the most lonely and isolating jobs there can be. That's why ministries like this that are feeding into the pastors and encouraging them are so helpful. And so uh, letting them know though, that I'm not, I'm not handing you over because you're, you're too much for me. Uh, I just want to make sure that we have the best care for you. They hear that and they go, I get that as opposed Mm -hmm. to, um, hey, we don't have a system here. Uh, unless I can fit into a small group or serve some way, I'm not useful here because we're doing all this mission stuff and my neediness is getting in the way. And I've mm-hmm. seen people experience that because the church is so mission. And what they mean by mission is more people showing up. And I love people showing up. I am not against the people showing up. I want more people showing up to the churches where I serve. Um, but if the leader talks in a certain way, about mission. Mission is worshiping God, cultivating the culture of the church where the word is preached and and the Lord's Supper and baptism celebrated and being sent out into the world. Caring for them fits in that and make sure that they have, that's communicated from the pulpit, that's communicated from the website, and that's communicated in that pastoral session. This is probably the uh, one of the longest podcasts we've had, and mm. I think it's, it's such an important topic. Um, and so we're going a little bit long, but but I, you guys have just been such a gift to me personally. I've learned so much from you uh, on this journey. Also, recognize I have so much more to learn. My guess is there are people listening saying, um, you know, just knowing that we don't know, how can we know better? How can we do better? What would your exhortation, just to each of you, and we'll start with Lindsay and then go to Justin, what would your exhortation be for pastors and church leaders to say, I want to do better? in this space as, as, I, as, as I'm trying to do, what, what would you say? I have a couple ideas. One, they can jump on Justin's website. It's justinholcomb.com and read articles um, on there are listed just different things that churches can do to better um, prevent childhood sexual abuse. How can they really create their min- their children's ministry to be a safe place? And of course, nothing is 100 percent um, foolproof, but what can they really put in place as far as not having couples or siblings serve together in children's ministry? And that has a variety of reasons just because they'll be less likely to see if something is inappropriate or call it out. Um, women should only change the diapers of babies. So there's just some basic little tiny things that you can start doing immediately. Look at your policies, look at how you handle children's ministry, youth ministry. Um, is your youth pastor trained and equipped about childhood prevention of sexual abuse? Are they texting um, the children or are they copying the adult onto an email? Like there's certain things like that that they can really start doing immediately. Another one that we've talked about is going ahead and reaching out in your community and finding out who are the good therapists? Um, Who are some great physicians? Who are some great um, investigators that I can call that handle, you know, victim advocacy or handle child abuse, sexual abuse um, cases and start building just a website or a, a list of those things so that you have some people to call. So create those bridges in the community, look at your policies, train your staff, Definitely any volunteers, my goodness, do interviews, do background checks, get references. Don't just stop at a a background check. 
I always say you need to probably have three pieces. It needs to be a number of references, a number of calling those references of different unique people, not just friends. Um, looking at their resume, have they bounced around from organization to organization every one or two years, doing an interview with them, um, and then just making it really aware to the congregation, like, hey, these are ways maybe we haven't done well, but this is the direction we're moving in where we're going to be really transparent. We are really, you know, going to kind of tighten down um, our policies so that our children are safe, so that we're creating this environment that is going to be safe to individuals who maybe have experienced abuse of any sort, and we're moving in this direction. So a pastor can admit that to their congregation of we're shifting in this direction, and that sends a strong message to predators who might be in your church looking for some gaps to take advantage of. But Justin probably has some more to add. Yeah, so pastors, people who want to learn about this, let me give you an example. Uh, I like uh, a few years ago, I started getting into really deep diving on financial literacy, personal finance, investing stuff. So what I did was because I wanted to learn about it. I was looking up books and podcasts, websites. I was talking to my friends. So I went, I mean, I just think of, I need to learn this. How do I solve this? So one is what are the resources? The first place to start are books. There's many books from New Growth Press on abuse. There's small three to 5,000 words on different types of abuse. There's there's our book, Langberg's book. I mean, the past 10 years has been shockingly encouraging of how many resources are now of it. When we first wrote our book, it was 10 years ago, 11 or 12 years ago. And there was uh, like Dan Allender had a book. And then, you know, there are a few others. And then our book, Rid of My Disgrace. And then thankfully, there's a whole bunch of other ones that are out there. There are books available and you can tell by who's endorsing them, who the author is, if they have the kind of theology that would fit really well. So there are resources out there. There are uh, courses in seminaries. This is this has been the past three or four years. I have taught, Lindsay, I've taught abuse and the church. That's the title, abuse and, not in, and the church. We've done that at Reformed Theological Seminary, Westminster Seminary, California, Neshota House, um, Gordon Conwell. So that it's a one credit hour, two credit hour course. They open it up to, uh, every school is open it up for auditors. So check your seminaries and see if there's courses on this. Or And and uh, we, we walked into one class. I thought there'd be like five people. I was like, okay, we're doing abuse. And 70 people wow. were mm. in the classroom. This was here in Orlando at RTS. So there are courses. And, and what happened was that because... Uh, the people, I said, what are you all doing here? I, I started, well, as, as you can tell, I cry. I started crying as soon as I walked in and I was like, this is amazing. There's 70, what's going on? And they said, we want resources. We we read the books. Let's do this now. There's conferences that are available. Uh, Lindsay and I have spoken at some. There's, there's conferences all over the place now, thankfully, where this is available. And there are trainings that are available, as Lindsay said, to bring to your church to do certificate uh, training, to do the training that's available. There's numerous organizations. Um, I, I'm on the board of one called Grace, Godly Response to Abuse in Christian Environments. There are dozens, at least a dozen other organizations that will do trainings for your church. And so those are some of the kind of low-hanging fruit of where to go. But I don't mean low-hanging fruit like it's kind of obvious. I mean, like they're right there for the mm. picking, but I yeah. wouldn't, I wouldn't know these organizations if we weren't doing this. And that's, right. that's what's so encouraging is there's books, there's organizations, there's courses, and there's conferences, and there's podcasts that you can go listen to. Mm. Yeah, we've come a long way. 
Justin Lindsay, thank you so much for this important conversation. We want to encourage you all to check out their books, Rid of My Disgrace, Hope and Healing for Sexual Assault Victims, and God May All of Me, a book to help children protect their Let bodies. Let me say, too, because I really do want to encourage people to do that. You know, we have authors on, we talk to them, their mm-hmm. books, but but they have been deeply, welcome to deeply ministered to me, taught me. And I want to encourage people to pick up those books as well and go to the, go to that website as well because I'm I've learned and still got a way to learn. You mm-hmm. want to say something, Justin? Go I ahead. want to, I want to say something because you've been very kind to us and and I and, and I know you're not doing flattery. You're, you don't you don't do flattery because what you say is what you mean, and that means the world to us because you know, we've been friends for over ten years, mm-hmm. and I love the fact that we get to partner and do this. And so the fact that we've had an influence that's just really fulfilling. And the fact that every time you have a chance, you're like. Hey, Justin Lindsay, let's let's talk about this. And you've been such an advocate for getting uh, because you, you have a heart for the gospel. You have a heart for the church and leaders and the world and how that all works out is so much fun to see someone who has taken the opportunity that you have to kind of be a, a megaphone for the message, both for the survivors, for the church, for um, the leaders for all these different people, all for the sake of the gospel. So I, I want to uh, also say thank you to you for the way that you've done this. You have been a wonderful advocate, and I'm grateful for what you've done over the 10 years that we've been teaching you. So <laughs> kind, you're kind. Yeah. Well, thank you, Justin and Lindsay, and thanks to you all for listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders podcast. You can find more interviews as well as other great content from ministry leaders at churchleaders.com slash podcast. And again, if you found our conversation today helpful, we'd love for you to take a few moments to leave us a review. That'll help other ministry leaders find us and benefit from our content. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Stetzer Church Leaders podcast. For more great interviews, as well as articles, videos, and free resources, visit our website at churchleaders.com. Thanks for listening.